Well, our time in the Word tonight, of course, is going to revolve around the questions that uh, you turned in from this morning. But before I jump right into that, I uh, received an email this past week. I want to share just part of it with you because, uh, of course, we've just come through the Christmas holidays. And uh, one of the things that people do is give one another Christmas cards. Or now in our day, a lot of people send them via email or uh, as attachments, that type of thing. And there was someone in our church congregation who received one of these from a family member, and it was sort of a, it was a Christmas email. And uh, boys, I, and they forwarded it to me because they were so disturbed by it. And uh, you'll see why as I read it to you. But it's just such, when I, when I got this and read it, I thought, what, what a vivid illustration of how many, of how there are people in our society who really hate God. And maybe it's hard for us to accept that, but, but that is the case. And, and here's what was sent. Uh, this was sent, again, this sort of a mass email to friends and family members at Christmas. And the couple that sent it, I obviously won't read their names for, to protect it uh, anonymously, but it just says, every once in a while someone breaks open, the, breaks open the meaning of Christmas in a way that turns the heart inside out. The following poem by Jan Phillips did that for us. We send to each of you a celebration of this season like you have never experienced it before. May your Christmas be joyful, thoughtful, and real much love. And then the couple puts their name. And then this is the, uh, this is the poem, or the, it's, if that's what you want to call it, poem. It says, Christmas Day Thoughts. No Savior born this day, no need to be saved. No sin on the soul, no Adam and Eve in the garden. No talking snake and voice in the sky. No Virgin Mary. No donkey ride to Bethlehem. No rejection at the end. No wise men with gifts. Just one good story that's lasted 2,000 years and not much different from the tales told 2,000 years before that. We are not the same tribespeople, the same nomads and villagers who would believe anything they were told. We go for the provable, the well-researched, the steeped-in-truth tales of wonder and awe. No raising of the dead, water into wine, walking on water for us. He was one of us, he said. Whatever he did, we can do, he said. I have my own story. It doesn't matter. There's no right or wrong here. It was 2,000 years ago, and no one was taking notes. Jesus was born one of seven. His mother was no virgin. He worked some with wood, but more with his mind. He thought new thoughts, opened himself to revelation, told stories day and night, was a vessel of the news, stood for justice, taught forgiveness, crucified for not caving in. That's the miracle of Jesus, if there is one. He thought his own thoughts when no one else did. Dangerous, but he never stopped. That's what I celebrate today, his original thinking. Oh, holy night. And that is their version of Christmas and what we celebrate at Christmas. So it gives you a little insight or window into the soul of so many people around us because sadly, I don't think that that thinking, though maybe most could not express it that way or would not express it that, that way, uh, that's, not, uh, that's not a rare exception as to the thinking in our society today. So uh, we, in fact, the title of the, the, the poem was uh, Christmas Day Thoughts from a Brooding Post-Christian. So a post-Christian era that we live in, and uh, as Christians, we could easily fail to see that that really is the case. Uh, 
uh, in our own country and in our world today. So that's the world in which we live, and we are called to be salt and light. Uh, Paul said in Philippians 2 that we are, to be, we are to be living as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's what we're supposed to be. If the first century was crooked and perverse, our century is just as crooked and perverse. And that's just one little illustration of it. So let's take our Bibles now and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 6 to begin our time in the Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll read this passage and then the question that was asked and we'll jump in the Word here. Obviously, we won't be able to turn to all to a passage for every question, for all of them, but when we can, we will. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, these are some of the greatest words in Scripture, such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And here's the question that was asked. If a gay man had come to Christ and turned from that sin, would there be any biblical reason they could not pursue ministry? As someone who had been an alcoholic, convicted thief, etc. And I believe the answer to that from this passage is no. There's no reason why that person could not pursue ministry. I mean, think about it. The Apostle Paul was a murderer. And when God saved him and cleansed him, he was, Paul said himself in his own testimony, God counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So anyone who's an ex, ex ex-alcoholic, ex-drunkard, ex-thief, ex-adulterer, ex-homosexual, as this passage says, such were some of you. You're washed. You're justified. Here's the next part. Would your answer change if that person continued to be tempted by same-sex attraction but maintained a a faithful obedience to Christ in how they dealt with it? And no, my answer would not change because it would be no different than a a drunkard who is saved but has to be careful uh, about temptation toward alcohol or a thief who's saved and has to be careful about temptation toward stealing or whatever the sin is. You know, for all of us, our sins are different, but they're, in a sense, no different. So if this person had uh, lived a homosexual lifestyle, was saved out of it, but that was a temptation, yet maintained faithful obedience to Christ, uh, that would not disqualify him from being in ministry. And then it says this, uh, the question was originally asked, throwing in the assumption that it was possible for a person to be genetically predisposed toward homosexuality, but I don't think that would make any difference. This question is in the wake of news about the Church of England, which admittedly has a huge range of doctrinal problems, having recently decided to allow gay clergy to become bishops, provided they are celibate. Note, the main distinction between what the Church of England has done and my question is that they allow openly gay clergy to be in civil unions and have not treated homosexuality as a sin. It's not really part of the question, just what prompted it. So, uh, you're right, there is a distinction there because uh, clearly from this passage and many others, homosexuality is a sin. It's a forgivable sin if a person repents, turns to Christ, but it doesn't disqualify someone from uh, certainly being in the kingdom of God or being in ministry. But what would disqualify such a person from being in the kingdom of God if they refuse to see it and acknowledge it as sin? 
If they say it's just, you know, uh, an alternative lifestyle, it's a genetic predisposition, you can't help it. Uh, you know, if you, if you deny the true, uh, I'll use medical terminology, if you deny the sickness, you deny the cure. And you can't do that biblically. And by the way, related to that, um, it is not provable, please understand this, it is not provable that anyone is genetically predisposed toward homosexuality. It's possible that someday that will be proven. Okay, it, it may be, but beloved, understand, if that is proven someday, you know what it changes? Absolutely nothing. All it does is confirm what God said in His Word. We are sinners by birth, nature, choice, and practice. So what if someday they prove that some people are genetically predisposed toward murder? Is that going to change anything? No, not for us as Christians. Murder's wrong. What if people are genetically predisposed toward uh, theft? Is that going to change anything? No. So it really would change nothing, but that has not been proven, though that is an assumption out there in society. Um, But understand that even if someone is genetically predisposed toward certain sins, and it may be that we all are, eventually research may demonstrate that, Uh, the fact is none of us are born, no one is really born gay or homosexual. There may be a tendency toward that, but there are still choices that are made to engage in that lifestyle. And that's why God says it's, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's unacceptable, and it's forgivable for those who will repent. All right, next question. Uh, let me grab my stack here of questions. First um, Peter 4.11, where we were this morning. First Peter 4.11. And the question... In 1 Peter 4.11, it says that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. When young children are raped or murdered, does this bring glory to God also since the verse says, in everything? Well, a couple of comments I want to say on that. The, the in everything here in the context of 1 Peter is that the, the in everything is not really talking about every possible scenario in context. The in everything in this context of ministry, people ministering their gifts. So this would not be the verse that if, if you say that there's some way that would bring glory to God, this would not be the verse you would use because the everything has a clear context here, ministry in the body of Christ with your gift. However, I would say this, that um, certainly, as we're told in the book of Romans, that God, don't make this mistake, God is not glorified in those heinous sins, okay? There's nothing glorifying to God in that. Uh, However, God may be glorified in the punishment of those wicked people who carry out those sins, as we see in the book of Romans. In other words, the book of Romans teaches us that God someday is going to be glorified when he pours out his righteous wrath on unrepentant sinners. So, uh, in a sense, you could say, is there any way God could be glorified through that? Well, God could be glorified not in the action, but in what he does in response to it, or what he even brings out of it. He may bring some enormous good out of such a heinous, tragic uh, uh, event in someone's life, and God be glorified in that, but be careful not to assume or state that there's anything in that that is inherently glorifying to God. This is uh, very similar to, uh, for example, what we are told in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good. That verse does not say that everything that happens to a Christian is good. 
What it says is God causes all things to work together for it. God will bring good out of it. Don't you dare say to, for example, some parents whose little four-year-old child was just hit by a car, well, that is good. That is not good. Okay? Or someone who, who loses a loved one uh, to cancer or, you know, uh, who loses an infant with uh, SIDS or something. Well, that's, a, that's good. No, that's not good. Don't, don't misrepresent Scripture that way. That's not good. Scripture doesn't say it's good. But it says God is so amazing that he can bring good out of it. And that's a similar to this question here. Is it good if a child is murdered? No. Is, does that bring God glory? No. If a child is raped, does that bring? No. That, does not, that, is, that is at the opposite end of the spectrum of the glory of God. But God is so great that he will bring, be glorified as a, as a result of it in some way, even if it's only in the, the righteous punishment of those who carry out those things, or maybe he will be glorified in what he does in people's lives in response to that. And that's one of the aspects of his greatness, that he could even be glorified and bring good out of such heinous things. But be careful, beloved, be careful with your wording so that you don't misrepresent God and crush people by your statement of something being good that's not good or something glorifying God that in and of itself does not glorify God. All right, next question says this. uh, What day of the week was Jesus crucified? And I I believe, and we can't really demonstrate all this, but I'll just just suffice to say, I believe the evidence points to a Friday crucifixion. Now, I have uh, people with whom I have a lot, or for whom I have a lot of respect, that because of Jesus' statement that just as... uh, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the the belly of the earth. And so as a result of that, they think you need to push the crucifixion back to Thursday, or I even know some who push it back to Wednesday as a crucifixion, trying to accommodate that. However, what we know from many Jewish writings, that that phrase, three days and three nights, in Jewish nomenclature, Jewish terminology, only meant any part of any day or night. There are, there are many examples that it did not necessarily mean 72 hours. So we have to take the statement the way Jesus meant it and the way people would have understood it. So any part of a day or night consisted of the day and night. So if Jesus was crucified on Friday, put into the tomb before sundown, he was in there Friday, Saturday all day, part of Sunday before he rose, that would fulfill his statement that he needed to be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. And, and one of the reasons why I believe that it was a Friday crucifixion is the gospel writers tell us that it was, they hurried, they had to hurry to get the, the bodies down before the Sabbath. We know the Sabbath was Saturday. And also because it was a special or high Sabbath or a high holy day, that's because it was both Passover and Sabbath. So the evidence for me is, is pretty conclusive. I read the arguments on the other side. They just don't convince me. I think he was crucified on Friday and he rose from the dead on Sunday. All right, next question says, uh, what verses support the view for a pre-tribulation rapture? I'll just mention a few of them. Let's turn to one of them. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 3, but I'll mention some more. But I want you to look at Revelation 3 because it's a very strong one. But uh, some of the other verses you could jot down here would be Titus 2.13, which says, we are looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what we are looking for. We're not looking for Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. So any 
statements in the New Testament that talk about being ready for the great gathering together under Jesus in the air because it could happen at any moment. Any of those verses or all of those verses are indicating the same thing, that Jesus could come any moment. Now, now understand this. Let me just elaborate a little bit on this. There are three other views on the timing of the rapture. There is the mid-trib rapture view. There is the post-trib and the pre-wrath rapture view. Now, all three of those views have some evidence. If they had no evidence, no Christians would believe them, right? And there are Christians who believe in a mid-trib, post-trib, and a pre-wrath. However, one thing you need to understand. If the biblical position on the timing of the rapture is mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib, then understand you cannot say, and it cannot be true, that Jesus could come back at any moment. You have to accept that. In other words, if it is mid-trib, Jesus cannot come back. We don't have to be ready for him to come back at any moment because he can't come back at any moment. He can't come back at least for three and a half years. If the tribulation started tomorrow, mid-trib is three and a half years. Pre-wrath is about six years plus, and post-trib is seven years. So if Jesus coming to the clouds to gather his church is mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib, you cannot hold to the doctrine of imminence. And I've only heard one Christian for the last 30 years who held to something other than a pre-trib rapture view. I've only known of one Christian who was consistent and intellectually honest to say, I don't believe the Bible says anything about imminence. Well, I would disagree, but at least they're consistent. Because they're saying, I don't believe there's any statement in the Bible that says you need to be ready because Jesus could come back at any moment. Okay, at least they're consistent. But a lot of Christians who hold to mid-trib, pre-wrath, or post-trib aren't that consistent. They hold to that view, but they say we need to be ready because Jesus could come back for us. No, we can't. So Titus 2.13, we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 5.9 both say Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. And in the context of those statements, that is not uh, eternal wrath, that is eschatological wrath. That is the wrath of the tribulation. And both of those verses say Jesus is going to deliver us from or out of that before that occurs. And then you have a similar statement here in Revelation 3, verse 10. Jesus says to the faithful church at Philadelphia, because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial. Greek preposition there is ek. We get our Greek or our English word exit from it. I will keep you ek, out of, exiting. I will keep you out of the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And it's obvious that Jesus is referring to the tribulation period that's coming. And he says, you are my people. You have kept my command. I will keep you out of that hour. And this time that's going to test the whole world And then the last phrase, to test those who dwell on the earth, literally, to test earth dwellers. That is a phrase used throughout the book of Revelation, a technical phrase, earth dwellers, to talk about those whose citizenship is not in heaven. They are earth dwellers. This is their home. This is where they belong. They are the ones who will be the focus of the tribulation period. Now, maybe you're saying, okay, that does seem to be a pretty clear promise to the church at Philadelphia that they will be kept out of it, but what about us? Well, all you have to do is go down a few verses into into verse 13 where we see that, that it is made clear that this promise applies to all true believers in 
true Christian churches because verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every one of these letters ends with that statement to say that what Jesus said in this letter applies to the churches. In fact, if you have an ear, you need to hear what Jesus says to his church. So this is one of the strongest statements, a very clear statement that believers will be kept out of the hour of trial which is coming upon the whole earth. If you add to that the fact that Jeremiah 37 refers to the tribulation period as a time of Jacob's trouble. What's another name for Jacob? Israel. It's a time of Israel's trouble. It's not a time where the church is the focus. All right, next question says this. Um, from a sermon a few weeks ago uh, in 1 Peter. So let's go back a little bit to the left of 1 Peter 3, verse 13 where it says, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? And the question is, is Cain murdering his brother an example of this exception? Because I mentioned in that message, now obviously there are exceptions to this statement because Jesus did good and they murdered him. So Peter isn't trying to give a definitive uh, you know, non-conditional statement or a statement without exception. He is just saying the general rule is that people in society don't harm good people. People who go around doing good, who are kind, thoughtful, considerate of their neighbors, etc., aren't usually the focus. But there are clearly exceptions. And yes, the example you give would be an exception. First uh, John 3.12 talks about Cain murdering his brother uh, Abel. And then it says this, he says this, Or do evildoers, as a general rule, seek to harm the righteous? Well, I don't know that you could make that a general rule because that is certainly true of some evildoers, not true of all evildoers. And in fact, I think Peter's statement here indicates that it is not true of all, all unbelievers that they seek to harm uh, people who do good. That would be the exception. Uh, Then he says, was Cain considered religious? Well, it's interesting that he did offer a sacrifice that wasn't acceptable to God, and that was part of the problem in his heart in in relation to his brother. So uh, he he did offer a sacrifice. So he was somewhat religious, yes. And then he says, well, so what qualifies someone as an evildoer or belonging to the evil one? Well, we could easily assume that what what, uh, qualifies someone as an evildoer is if they do wicked things like you know, kill people and steal and cheat and lie. And certainly that would be classified. But it's interesting that Paul says in Philippians 3 about religious people, he says in Philippians 3 too, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. And he's referring to the Judaizers there, some of the most religious people in the first century. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation For we are the true circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul calls calls those religious people who are distorting the gospel evil workers. And in in Matthew 7, you remember when Jesus says, on judgment day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then Jesus said, I will declare to them, depart from me, I never knew you. You who, you know the rest of it? Practice lawlessness or evil or wickedness. So from God's divine viewpoint, the only people who are considered evil workers are not merely people who do evil things in the way that we would think of it. Really bad things. Mean things. From God's perspective, it is just as evil, if not more so, 
to distort the gospel, distort the truth, replace biblical Christianity with religion. That is very evil in God's eyes. Very evil. And he calls such people evil workers. All right, next question. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12, though it's not on this passage, but just keep going back to the left from 1 Peter. Prior to James is Hebrews chapter 12. And the question is actually on Galatians 6, 9, which says, And let us not become weary of doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And the question is, how do we not become weary of doing good? Well, I think part of the hint is right there in that verse where where Paul says, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. In other words, one of the ways we keep from becoming weary of doing good is a futuristic focus or perspective. In due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Look to the future. Look beyond the circumstances of now. And and that's why I have us turn to Hebrews 12 because Hebrews 12 says, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. By the way, the word race there is the Greek word agona, from which we get our English word agony. So let us run with endurance the agony that is set before us. What that tells us, beloved, is the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. There are a lot of Christians who do well for a while. They run a good 100-yard dash or 400 meters, but they don't run a marathon. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying we need to run with endurance this agonizing race that is set before us. How? What gives us endurance? Here it is. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Well, what specifically about him? Not just his person, though that's true, but also look at the way he endured. Look at the way he did not become weary of doing the will of God. Well, what did he do? Well, it says, who for the joy that was set before him. See, Jesus did the same thing. He looked beyond this life to the joy that was set before him, and then he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So an eternal perspective, futuristic perspective, a a, a perspective that looks beyond this life is the only thing I know that keeps us from becoming weary of doing good. Otherwise, if we just are focused on this life, it can be very discouraging and very disheartening. The next question says this. We don't need to turn back to it. Most of you are familiar with it. Uh, It says, when David wrote Psalm 22, that's the psalm that opens by saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted it on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When David wrote Psalm 22, did he know or intend it to be prophecy? And the answer to that question is probably no. He didn't really know. He was writing about his own experience. And it's not written in a futuristic way like a prediction. It was reflecting his own experience. If not, when was it recognized as prophecy? Well, it was recognized as prophecy when so many events in the life of our Lord paralleled what was written in Psalm 22. So that's when it was recognized as prophecy. And how did it become prophecy or recognized as prophecy? Well, as I said, when, uh, when... people begin to see these amazing parallels between Psalm, 15, or Psalm 22 and the experience of the Messiah. Interestingly, there are 15 New Testament quotes or allusions to Psalm 22. 
I think that's more than any other psalm with the possible exception of Psalm 110. In fact, in some circles, Psalm 22 is called the fifth gospel because it is such an amazing portrait and portrayal of Messiah Jesus' experience. Uh, But David probably did not know he was writing prophecy or intended to be prophecy. He was talking about his own experiences and they amazingly paralleled the greater David, the greater son of David, King Jesus. All right, Matthew chapter 6 for the next question. Go, keep going back to the left to Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 17, Jesus says in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but when you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your feet, and you're probably familiar with this passage, but the question that was asked is, I am wondering if this passage teaches, are we to fast as Christians? And I appreciate the way you asked the question, so let me answer it very Uh, Try to answer it very accurately. Notice what Jesus says here. There's a sense in which you could say that Jesus was not necessarily teaching us to fast, but rather teaching us what to do if or when we fast. So it is not so much a command to fast, but rather instruction on what to do when we would fast. And this is really interesting because if you go back into the Old Testament, there were a lot of fasts and a lot of events where you could find uh, discussion of the the Jewish people fasting. However, it is interesting to note that there is really only one time that God himself, in his word, commanded the Jewish people to fast. Only one time. And that is once a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, a day of fasting. All other, fasts that the Jew, all other fasts that the Jewish people participated in were ones that they decided to participate in. Now, I'm not implying they were wrong in doing that because why do we fast when we fast? It is the setting aside of food because of some extreme burden on your heart, some uh, extreme focus on prayer. And so when God's people go through times like that, there are times when they don't want food or they want to set it aside so that they're not distracted so they can pray. But just understand that the only command in Scripture about fasting is in the Old Covenant, not even to us as the church, but rather to the the Old Covenant people, the Jewish people, one command as far as having to fast, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. But here Jesus assumes that his people would fast. There would be occasions when they would. So he gives instructions. When you fast, don't go around bragging about it. Wash your face. Don't look all disheveled saying, boy, am I not really spiritual? Look, I'm fasting so I can pray here. Don't do that. Just don't do that. When you fast, then follow these instructions. So is your, your question, is fasting Christian? Well, do you mean is it commanded of us as Christians? No, it's not commanded really. Is it Christian? Yes, it's Christian in the sense that it's certainly appropriate for a Christian to do. If he or she is inclined to do it, desires to do it, is burdened to do it, that's appropriate. But the only reason I'm trying to be so precise here is that I've seen a lot of books through the years, thick books on fasting, and I'm amazed at some of the material in those books because, you know what, it's just a lot of stuff that's nowhere in the Bible. People come up with all sorts of things, and, and undiscerning Christians say, oh, wow, I didn't know the Bible had so much to say about fasting. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't have a whole lot to say. Um, but some Christians are looking, you know, for the silver bullet, the key to unlocking everything. And some, th- oh, that must be fasting because a lot of Christians don't do that. And so then there's all this extrapolation and teaching that really can't be defended biblically uh, regarding fasting. 
All right, next question says this. Uh, we won't turn to it because it's written out. It says, please explain uh, the difference here. Uh, referring to King Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18.5 says, So that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. And then again, 2 Kings 23.25, Before him there was no king like him, etc. So we have two times where the writer of Kings says, uh, Before him there was no king that compared to Hezekiah. And then one of the statements says, even after him, there was no king like Hezekiah. And the question is, well, what about King Josiah? And if you're familiar with Hebrew Scripture, you know that King Josiah was an amazing king, carried out some of the greatest reforms in Israel, and he was, he was clearly one of the top kings. However, one of the things interesting about Josiah, as well as David, and we're talking about Davidic line here, is that both men had multiple wives, which was forbidden of kings in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And we don't have any evidence that Hezekiah did have multiple wives. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the only distinction between Hezekiah and Josiah, Hezekiah and David, but the writer is saying that Hezekiah was unique. He was a unique, godly man of all the kings of Israel. In fact, someone told me, I don't know how I could verify this, but someone told me, an Old Testament scholar uh, a couple years ago, and I'd like to be able to see if I could could uh, add up all the verses or something, but he said, more is said about King Hezekiah in Hebrew Scripture than any other Old Testament character. That was really interesting for me to hear, that, that Scripture says more about King Hezekiah than any, more than about Abraham, Moses, pick whoever you want to pick, more is said about Hezekiah. I, I can't vouch for that, but even if it's not technically accurate, the, the point is still he was, he was a unique Godly man and extolled as such. All right, next question says this. Uh, in Genesis 1, it talks about the waters being uh, split and there being a firmament um, inside. Uh, what is the, let's see, firmament inside. What is the firmament? Is it the world, the universe, etc.? Well, from Genesis 1, and you could compare Psalm 19, the firmament is the expanse of space. It is the place where God set the sun, the moon, the stars, and it is the, uh, the aspect of God's creation that, that is uh, a unique attention is given to it because God stretched out the heavens like a curtain, Scripture tells us, in more than one place. So this stretching out of the spaces, stretching out of the expanse of the sky is what Scripture calls uh, the firmament. All right, next question. Actually, this one was really, really acute to me. It's a, I think this is a young guy, uh, and he pre, uh, prefaces his questions and concludes his questions with this. And this is great. I'm glad that he says, you don't have to answer all of these. I'm sorry for all the questions, but I missed last month's Q&A. And then he gives me a bunch of questions. And I, the nice thing about it, they're kind of bullet point questions, and I can answer them all. And then at the end, after question number nine, again, I'm sorry for all the questions, okay? But we'll answer these quickly and call it a night because they really sort of are bullet point questions that could be answered quickly. Uh, number one, when Lazarus died, did he go to heaven and back or to hell and back, or was he just in a deep sleep? Well, he didn't go to hell. He was a righteous man. He wasn't in a deep sleep because there's no such thing as soul sleep in the Bible. Therefore, the only thing we conclude can conclude is that he did go to heaven or to Abraham's bosom, paradise, whatever term you want to use, and then came back. 
Question number two, do we in heaven have to worship all three of the Trinity or just one, or will they all be in one body? No, they are three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we will worship the triune Godhead, all members of the Godhead in heaven. But they are distinct. They're not all in one body. Question three, I'm reading through the Left Behind books, and I know you can't trust all you read. Anyway, it says, if you become a Christian, the judgments will just affect non-Christians. Is that true? Uh, actually, there is evidence in the book of Revelation. Not, I wouldn't say conclusive, but there is evidence that, that believers who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation may be exempted from those judgments, which would explain one of the reasons why the world is so angry at and blames the believers for those judgments. Why aren't you experiencing what we're experiencing, sort of like the plagues in Egypt or some of them? Question four, would it be prideful for the Lord to say, make a memorial for me? No, it's not prideful. It may sound that way to us because it would be for us. But listen, remembering the Lord, which is what a memorial would be, remembering the Lord is the best thing for us. And so in God asking them to raise a memorial for him, he is asking the best thing of his people. What is best for, for his people, what is healthiest for his people. Next question, when God sent the flood... Would the demons on earth have died? This goes back to the Genesis 6 passage, etc. Because they were spirits, right. No, the demons would not have died. But if they had offspring, if, if the writer of Genesis is saying Nephilim came from that, they would have died. But that is why both Jude and Second Peter tell, tell us that the spirits were confined in prison as a judgment. They didn't die, but they were sent to Tartarus or the pit. Question six, can Satan affect your thinking, saying, and doing? Absolutely. First Peter 5.8 says, be uh, alert. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So he can affect us if we give him opportunity. Can Satan send one of his demons to come and tempt us, or is that just his job? No, according to Ephesians 6, 10 through 13, the principalities and powers, the spirit beings are involved. The demons are involved in an extension of Satan's uh, uh, work. So yes, demons also can do that. Number eight, can someone today be possessed with demons in this day and age? And yes, there's nothing in Scripture that would indicate that was confined to the first century. And final question, can people uh, actually communicate with demons or the dead? If so, why does God allow that? Well, God allows it just like he allows us to sin, to lie, steal, cheat, whatever we do wrong. It's not right, and it's not right. God prohibits that, or he forbids it. Uh, not pro- he doesn't stop it. He forbids it, but people do it anyway. So you're right in your question. It's not right. Why would God allow it? Well, he would only allow it in the sense that he allows sin to go in our world. And then again, I'm sorry for all the questions. Well, don't be sorry. Those were good questions, and I'm glad you felt like you could make up for missing last month's Q&A. So uh, let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you for our time together this evening, and uh, thank you for our time in the Word, these questions, and, uh, and, and just for the, just the, the uh, diversity of your Word, just the, how it expresses so, uh, so many things and touches on so many things and answers so many questions. And we acknowledge that maybe it doesn't answer all the questions that we would want answered, but certainly all the ones that you know are necessary for us to understand. We think of that great statement in Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord, but those that are revealed are for us, 
so that we can know you and know your word and know your truth. So may we can be content with what you have revealed and not worry about the secret things that belong to you, things that we may know someday in eternity. But certainly you've given us enough to, to meditate on, chew on, to spend our lives learning and living. And may that be the, the direction of our lives as we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.